Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DiPietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I have a very special guest. Dwayne Gathers is the founder and president of Gathers Strategies, a Los Angeles-based government relations and community engagement services firm, and the host of the dynamic Civitas LA podcast. Dwayne is a true product of New York, having principally grown up in Harlem and then living in four out of five boroughs during his time in the Empire State. Proud of his time in public schools and the impact his teachers had on his life, he would go on to attend Deerfield Academy in Massachusetts and then earn his degree in economics and government from Dartmouth. After working for a commercial bank, Duane began his public sector career at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development and then the U.S. State Department. Prior to relocating to California and working as a regional manager for the LA Economic Development Corporation, Duane held the position of the director of the California Office of Trade and Investment in South Africa. This position would take him to Johannesburg for four and a half years, just as Nelson Mandela rose to the presidency just a year prior. He would serve as a bridge between the economic interests of not only the private and public sectors, but nations and continents. To complement and even go beyond his work around Los Angeles, including past involvement with the Broad Stage in Santa Monica, the Hollywood United Methodist Church, and the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce, to name a few, Dwayne started the Civitas LA podcast in July of 2020. With the goal of elevating civic discourse and knowledge, Civitas LA has quickly become the benchmark in community conversations and engagement. During our discussion, we talk about his background, his time working in the public sector, his love of Los Angeles, and the challenges and successes each of us have had in hosting our own civic-minded community podcasts. As with many great things, I found Civitas LA by accident earlier this year and have become an avid listener because our podcasts share a similar purpose and his conversations about Los Angeles are second to none. So without further delay, my conversation with Civitas LA's Dwayne Gathers. Dwayne, welcome to the podcast. James, it's wonderful to be with you on this wonderful, hot Friday afternoon in Los Angeles. The reason I wanted to have you on the show is that you have a wonderful podcast, Civitas LA, which we're going to get into. But before we do that, I kind of want to talk about your background and your career, because I think both of those are really interesting. So to kind of start our conversation, you've had a really diverse career, and it's taken you around the world and back. You were born and raised in Harlem and then went to a prestigious boarding school in Massachusetts. So to kind of start our conversation, can you share a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. Uh, Again, James, thank you for having me on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, As a fellow podcaster, I can say this is the first time that I've actually been on this side of the conversation. So this is new for me. But yeah, you know, I was, I mean, I'm a New Yorker, born and raised in Harlem principally, although I would say that I'm probably one of those unique people that's actually lived in four of the five boroughs of New York City. Um, You know, born and raised principally in Harlem. Our family moved to the Bronx. Um, when things started getting dicey in New York City in, in, in the 70s. You know, subsequently, I did go off to boarding school, but post-college, I lived in Brooklyn. No, we were, we were in Queens for a little bit as well. And then um, post-college, Brooklyn, then Manhattan. But um, certainly my formative years were all in Harlem, uh, where we lived on 124th Street, which was a wonderful block. 
and uh, I went to public schools in, in Harlem. A shout out to my my classmates at the Hans Christian Andersen PS one forty four. We had a we had a, a Zoom reunion um, last year during the pandemic, so it was great to see all everybody and stay connected. And um, so I was at PS one forty four, and then Watley Intermediate School. And and really, it was at at Watley that probably my trajectory you know changed drastically. You know, had I stayed in New York. Um, I was on track to go to the Bronx High School of Science, one of three um, three schools that you take an exam for. If you do really well, you go to Stuyvesant, second, you know, Bronx Science, and then um, and then Brooklyn Tech. So, but it was really through the um, a better chance program at Wadley, run by Mr. Ed Plummer, who essentially voluntold you that you're going to do this. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, what is the ABC program? Um, but you know, it's people like Mr. Plummer who really kept an eye on his kids. He called them his kids, you know, his boys and girls, and identified those who might have aptitude and ability to consider a boarding school experience. And certainly back then, um, you had a number of, of schools in New England, you know, post-protests and what have you in, in 68, 7, in that period, who were also looking to identify and, and elevate you know, minority candidates for the boarding school experience. So that's how the ABC program came about. And, and, you know, they're based in Boston. So Mr. Plummer ran that program with an iron fist, but, you know, he essentially identified boys and girls for consideration. He had the conversations with the parents to say, here's what we're going to do. And, um, you know, my mother said, sounds great. And, you know, through that um, extra preparation, um, you know, you're, you're set on course to meet with these admissions directors from these schools who came, you know, to Harlem to meet with us. And you know, I took the SSATs, the secondary school admissions test, and did well enough and got accepted into two schools. And it was like, wow, this is kind of interesting and exciting. And I guess we're going to go. So I went off to Deerfield Academy. So what was that like going from Harlem to Deerfield, which I had to look it up, had 4,500 people in it when you graduated? Talk about a very small community. You know, you have these really elaborate college tours now that people take their their kids on. I was just talking to a, a college classmate and she was talking about the college tour with her, with her son two years ago um, uh, or last year, excuse me. And, you know, in this case, you may have video presentations around these schools. You meet with the admissions directors, but we didn't go on any tours of these schools. You know, what I knew of them was what I saw in the catalogs <laughs> presentation. So, but, but it all, it, it all just looked phenomenal, just phenomenal. And so, um, you know, I transitioned to, to Deerfield and, you know, our freshman class, most people come in as a sophomore. I came in as a freshman and there were like 56 of us um, in the freshman class. And, you know, the school population overall was maybe 500 boys, uh, all boys at the time is now co-ed. But, um, you know, it's interesting. You know, I, I got there literally sight unseen and was going to my dorm. Chapin One was my dormitory. And, you know, just started meeting people, meeting the, the, the quartermaster, Mr. Corkum and the other, the other, the other kids and everybody was welcoming. And, you know, I hadn't, I, I literally went there, had not even seen the darn place and, but just sort of jumped in, just, just jumped in both, both feet. I would have to say it was just an amazing experience. And of those 55, so many of those folks, you know, we are still, you know, in touch all these years later. And we were to have a reunion two years ago, which got, way late because of the pandemic, but it's been now postponed 
to this summer. So in June of 2022, I look forward to seeing a lot of these folks. Based on your career in public service and private service and, and in nonprofit work, you must have had really strong influences that kind of shaped your approach to things and your values. Who were some of your earliest influences or mentors and why were they so important? I think for me, it was teachers. And it, yeah, you hear this a lot about the, the impact that teachers can have on on young minds. And I know for me, you know, I remember all of my elementary school teachers um, at, at PS 144, but I would certainly, you know, have say Doris Brunson, Miss, Miss Brunson, just always refined and elegant. And she was my homeroom teacher in eighth grade and social studies teacher. And just the, the joy of learning, you know, speaking about, you know, citizenship and civic engagement was important. I learned that from her. And certainly just, uh, you know, Ed Plummer, who was also, a, was also a history teacher. I didn't have him for a class because I had Ms. Brunson, but he ran the, he ran the ABC program and, you know, just hard work and discipline. He was, he was about hard work and discipline and focus. And, you know, I always appreciated that. And then I would have to, I would have to throw in there, um, at the, at the Watley level as well, uh, Mr. Perkins, because we had a language class that we had to take. And I think in sixth grade, you had to take Spanish. And for some reason, I just wasn't comprehending it. It wasn't working for me very well in New York City. At that point, I was living in the Bronx, but still going to school in Harlem. And so I said, seventh grade, I'm going to take Mr. Perkins's French class. And voila, you know, I just fell in love with the language. Subsequently, you know, that led me to you know, taking French when I got to, you know, Deerfield and we had three years of language requirement and I took it for four years. That led me to college where we had a language, I participated in a language study program, lived in France. And, you know, so that, I just remember that, that thread of being introduced to French and the language and my love for languages. And, um, and certainly I think my love for, you know, sort of for the world because through that, you know, I sort of wanted to experience someplace else. And, and for me, that was France. That was the first time I'd ever gone overseas was when I was at Dartmouth and living uh, with a family in France. Well, I've alluded to this, but you've had an incredibly diverse career, one that's started on the East Coast and it kind of brought you out to California, but then also took you internationally. When looking back on it, how did your career unfold? Was it a lot of it planned or did it kind of just evolve naturally? No, um, I would say none of it was planned, actually. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's interesting. You know, I think, I think, you know, certainly a, a, a quality liberal arts education where you're learning to read and write and think critically and communicate both in writing and verbally, so important. And that was certainly foundational at Deerfield and also at Dartmouth. But I think you know, the real value of those eight years are also, you know, the quality of amazing relationships that one develops. And um, so I think that sort of social capital is so important and the networks that one builds. But certainly, you know, it started out with, you know, me thinking after Dartmouth that I'm going to go back to New York. That was just sort of the obvious thing. And, you know, when you're sitting there in freezing Hanover, New Hampshire in, you know, January and February, and you have to go through this quote unquote corporate recruiting process, you know, it's like, wow, that, that, was, that was sort of interesting to me that, you know, all these banks and accounting firms and law firms and management consulting firms, you know, all traipsed up to these schools in the dead of winter, telling us how special we were allegedly. And all you had to do was sort of sign up and then you get these 30 minute interviews and 
occasionally if you go to the next round, you get a quote unquote callback. So you get to go to New York and dress up in a suit for a day. And so, you know, so, so thinking about that, you know, it wasn't necessarily a plan, but I just thought it just was natural that I would go back to New York and, you know, what are you going to do? And in this case, I just sort of followed the herd, which was, you know, you know, the corporate um, slash finance scene in, in New York. So, you know, I ended up getting an offer at um, Chemical Bank and join their management training program. But I would say beyond beyond that, you know, I've never really applied for a job. From from there on, it was always sort of relationships, somebody out of the blue, hey, we're looking for someone to do X, Y, and Z. Would you be interested? Or, hey, your name came up. And, you know, oftentimes, frankly, I would say like, wow, why me? Yeah, wow, thank you for thinking of me. That's interesting. And, 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 I, and I always sort of pursued things that I thought were simply interesting. You know, I figured I'd have time to sort of settle into something. But, you know, I had had this amazing four-year experience in Western Massachusetts at Deerfield. I had this incredible experience, another four years up in New England at, in Hanover at Dartmouth. And so, you know, I just wanted to continue having good experiences. And so I never really settled into anything, you know, but I had a lot of things that just sort of came up along the way that I just said, sure, sounds good and see how it works out. And that kept me going around the world. One of those things that you've talked about and one of those incredibly interesting parts of your career is your work in South Africa. You took a position in Johannesburg just a year after South Africa formed a democratic government and Nelson Mandela came to power. Now, what was that experience like seeing a country emerge from apartheid? Yeah, that was that was um, interesting because um, I had had a really wonderful experience um, working for then Ambassador Hank Cohen, who was the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs at the State Department. And he was, you know, Mr. Africa. Uh, he had been ambassador in Senegal. He had been at the embassy, U.S. embassy in Paris. Um, he had been director of African affairs at the National Security Council. So I worked as his special assistant for about a year and a half or so and was just fully, fully, fully immersed in all things Africa from, you know, 7 a.m. to, you know, 8 p.m., you know, all that time, which included, um, you know, the release of Nelson Mandela and the path to democratization in South Africa, conflict in Angola, conflict in Ethiopia. Uh, Frankly, back then it was all conflict, conflict, conflict. Um, And then I had the opportunity um, to work on a USAID, U.S. Agency for International Development um, project, um, South Africa Democracy Support Project, um, which had, you know, small teams of people involved in politics, government, economic development, et cetera. And they they created these small teams to work with the various political parties in South Africa uh, in preparation for the road to democratization. So that period prior to the election, I was working with a team that um, that worked with the Azapa, which was a political party there. And we would go, you know, every four or five months back to South Africa for, you know, 10 days, two weeks. And we'd help them craft messages, um, help them, you know, just, just plan. And then um, I was asked to be a part of the UN election observation mission in April of 94, South African election for April 24, 5, and 6. I remember those days like the back of my hand. 
And um, so I was part of the U.S. delegation, part of the overall U.N. observation mission, observing the election that year. And that was just a powerful experience. But, um, you know, I got back to D.C. and I was working with um, a public affairs firm um, doing a variety of things, not Africa related at all. And then I, I got a call again, the power of these networks and relationships, someone that I had known at Deerfield and known at Dartmouth, um, was then working in California and said the state of California's trade and investment, trade and commerce agency was looking to open this office in South Africa. And I don't know if anybody in Sacramento knows much about South Africa. Would you at least be willing to talk to them about, you know, your perspectives on the place and observations? So that's how, you know, I ended up talking to the trade and commerce agency and gave them my thoughts. And the the person who I was meeting with said to me, you'd be great for this job. Would you be interested? And I thought like, no, I'm enjoying life here in, in DC. My family's in New York City. The Metro line is two hours and 59 minutes away. I'm good. And so he said, look, you've got this Africa experience. You've got this economic development um, background. You've got this banking background. And I said, I know nothing about California. I, you know, I, I think I'd been to California once. And he said, that's okay. Your job is to know South Africa and build relationships. So it was, um, so Julie Meyer Wright, who's a dear friend to this day, was Secretary of Trade and Commerce. And she said, look, just go and do it for two years. And then you can go on your merry way back to DC or New York. And um, I ended up staying, you know, four and a half years and and loved every minute of it. Um, And it was just a great opportunity to see and work in a place that was going through such amazing change some positive for some, some and some negative for others. Yet there was a lot of excitement and hope and joy uh, around this, this, this new country. And the, the place is just dropped at beautiful. And at an early age, you know, I had a small team of, uh, of, of local staff and we just had a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Our job was to build relationships, promote California, obviously. And, um, and we did a great job of that. It was very, it was a very successful office. Are you still active in U.S.-Africa relations? You know, I still stay in touch with, you know, a number of folks in South Africa, friends in government, friends in business, and just personal friends. A lot of friends, um, you know, have, have migrated to, you know, Toronto and Melbourne and Sydney and, and other places. But, you know, when, I, when I'm back in D.C., I, always, I often reach out to a number of the African embassies and, you know, I've offered, you know, seminar series on, on how to better engage California in your U.S. economic development strategies. You know, if and when ministers and others are coming out to the West Coast, you know, I'm always available to host a luncheon or meet with them and just share thoughts on it. But it, it has, I, I can't say I'm, I, it's been a, you know, a revenue driver for me at all, but, you know, I think it's important. And I try to communicate, you know, you know, you know, to the Africans that I'm still in touch with, you know, obviously the importance of California and what an amazing relationship it can be for them. I think a lot of them still so focus on the government in Washington, D.C. or governance and the U.N. in New York. And then they just don't understand how the U.S. works. But, um, you know, but I try to communicate that, you know, we've got 90 plus countries here in Southern California and L.A. So the third largest um, you know, diplomatic and consular corps in the country behind D.C. and New York. And really the only only African countries here where the presence is South Africa and Kenya and Ethiopia, you know, Angola closed down a couple of years ago. But they're not as active as they can and should be, I think. 
you know, I knew nothing about California going into the job. I knew, I knew a fair amount about South Africa, but you know, it was like, you know, drinking water from a fire hose. You know, we were working with, you know, Qualcomm down in San Diego, Sunkiss Oranges, um, you know, apparel companies, uh, motion picture association on, on, on film content issues. So, you know, our, our, our mighty team of three had to be, you know, quote unquote experts <laughs> on, on any matter tossed our way by somebody in California and all these firms in California would think, well, you know, you're our embassy in, in South Africa. You must, you must know Nelson Mandela can get me a meeting. You must know this. So we, we, we learned a lot really, really fast. And, um, and with that experience, that's when I kind of thought, wow, what an amazing state. And, you know, I could have gone back to DC quite easily. I could have gone back to New York. But, you know, when I left South Africa after four and a half years, I said, I have to actually live in the state now. This has been just a fantastic experience. I got to, got to live there next. You sold California for four and a half years. It was time for you to actually live here. It's a good transition to talking about your move to Los Angeles and then Civitas LA. Since coming to LA, You've been incredibly involved with the community. You served on numerous commissions, committees, and boards, including the Community Redevelopment Agency, the Broad Stage in Santa Monica, International Visitors Council of LA, and more recently, you were the board chair of the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce, which during COVID is incredibly challenging. Why was it important for you to get involved when you came to California? You know, when I first got to California, I was in San Francisco for a number of years, and try doing my own consulting work. And frankly, that did not work out so well. As I said to somebody the other day, I said, you know, when I got to the Bay Area, everybody is talking tech and Asia, and I'm talking natural resources in Africa. <laughs> so it was sort of a it mismatch in, in sort of my nascent um, consulting um, goals and objectives. And plus, you know, after four and a half years being sunny Southern California, I distinctly remember that I got to San Francisco in January of 2000. And it rained for 21 of 28 days that February. So, so that, so that town and I never, never got on well at all. But it was really through um, Lee Harrington, the late president and CEO of LA Economic Development Corporation, who I had met on a trip to South Africa and met on trips to California. He knew of my work and, you know, he knew, you know, Julie Meyer Wright, who had been secretary of trade and commerce agency, but became president of the San Diego regional EDC. And, you know, he encouraged me to, to take a look at the LA EDC because they had just um, taken over also the uh, World Trade Center Association, LA and Long Beach, and, and certainly recognized the importance of sort of the international aspect of economic development, particularly in terms of growing jobs and growing, attracting investment to the region, but also working with businesses to understand the world and to look at, you know, selling beyond the U.S. So so that just sounded interesting to me. And I was ready to get out of San Francisco. And I remember driving down here and and that was January of 04 and just never looked back. And so I think part of part of my sort of engagement in getting involved in Los Angeles was certainly a function of of the work that I did. I was one of the regional managers. You know, I was given this geography called Central and South Los Angeles. So that incorporated from East LA through downtown over to Hollywood, mid city, all of South LA. So, you know, our job is to sort of be conveners and collaborators and to support businesses on their individual issues, to collaborate with the sub regional groups on 
economic development strategies to attract jobs and what have you, obviously interface with government on policies like tax, workforce development, incentives, et cetera. So it was just a function of the job that you know, you're forced to get involved. And I simply loved it. It was great work because, you know, again, I remember as a kid in New York, you know, we didn't, we didn't do a lot of traveling, but I used to do a lot of solo missions on the subway to different parts of, of New York to say, what goes on here and why? So, you know, you fast forward to, to this time in South Africa, my job is to figure out what goes on here and why and who. And now I'm in Los Angeles, my job is to figure out what goes on here, why and who. So whether it was working with the downtown bid and, you know, the great work that Hal Bastion was doing, Cower Shots in downtown, working with the folks over the Crenshaw Chamber over in South LA, getting to the Hollywood chamber, um, you know, my job was to sort of get involved in what, what they were doing and how could the LADC be a resource for them. But then, concur- so that was just really professionally driven. But then, you know, in my own personal interest, you know, I'd always tried to find another avenue to channel interests of mine, A, just interests of mine, and also as a way of getting to know community and build community in new cities. So, for example, when I was in D.C., doing all my international work, you know, I was I was a volunteer with DC Cares, for example, in San Francisco. You know, I was a volunteer with Business Council for the Arts, um, and then in LA, again, having had that experience as a, as a as a student living with a family in France, you know, I just and now having and having lived in South Africa, you know, I just love the world and the importance of, of, of citizen engagement and understanding the world. And I realized and I recognize how few Americans actually have passports. So I just remember serendipitously just calling the International Visitors Council, which I, I knew of in San Francisco. And I just said, hey, I'm interested in getting involved in citizen diplomacy. I can host visitors, et cetera. And, you know, got quickly caught up and invited to join the board, actually. To, and then to, to my chagrin, I always blame him for this. Andy Lika, who's you know, CEO of Good Samaritan Hospital, said, hey, I think Dwayne should be president of this board. <laughs> you know, so that was so that was so that was during the, the, the recession in 2008, nine. So when I chaired that board, but so that was just something of interest of, to me personally outside of my work, but a lot of, you know, so I've got, you know, sort of two strains, the things that I enjoy. I love live music. So being invited to participate on the board of the Broad stage early in its life, season three, I was on the board from season three to season 10 was great. And then the IVCLA and that international work. And then again, you know, my, then I had this, the civic side, which, you know, really a function of my time at the LADC and having relationships with the city and being invited to be on the workforce investment board and then on from there. So, Well, before we talk about Civitas LA a little bit more, this is a question I ask a lot of the policymakers in, in Pasadena that I, that I interview and small business owners. Based on your experience, what do you think we should be doing to empower people to start businesses here in Los Angeles? Because we all see the headlines, and unfortunately that doesn't tell the whole story, but we all see the headlines of, you know, this this large company moving to Dallas, that's always the, always the headline that we see more and more. But that's, again, it doesn't tell the whole story about the small businesses that are starting here that don't get all the attention. But what do you think we should be doing here in, in LA and the LA, greater LA region to promote people to start their own businesses? Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because certainly in my LA EDC work, i I find it particularly interesting in, in some of our minority communities with East L.A. or South L.A. that, you know, a, a community becomes validated 
if and when, you know, the Starbucks shows up, you know, the, the known entities. And I always hated that, frankly, because I said, no, I'd rather, you know, have, you know, Sally or Jane with an idea to grow that idea there and for them to own and run the coffee shop and the bakery shop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's interesting. You know, I think part of it is, you know, people need to be inspired or made, made aware of the opportunity and inspired. And I think part of that, one of the things that I looked at with someone else, you know, in Hollywood some years ago is like, you know, why don't we have sort of incubators associated with our community colleges? where people can come in with an idea and test it out, you know, get some, get some training and some support to, to do that. You know, I think we've got nine colleges in the community college district. Um, and so that would just be a, a great way to say, you know, at some cost or no cost to, to kind of go in and fuel that, that passion for creating and then out of that creation, build something or, you know, curriculum, you know, at the high school level. You know, why, why wait until, why wait till business school that you really sort of manifest that desire to, you know, to, to further one's business knowledge when we should be thinking about and maybe teaching entrepreneurship at the high school level, um, like we do other things. But I think, you know, A, you know, we should think about, you know, getting to folks at an earlier start. So probably the high school level. And then B, you know, I would, I would really like have these incubators, you know, attached to our community colleges where creators can can learn how to grow an opportunity. And yeah, I think, you know, the, obviously the challenge is, you know, once one scales a business here, then you look at the cost of doing business here, whether it's the labor cost, you know, insurance costs, land costs, rent costs, et cetera. And that drives people away. But, um, I, you know, I, I, always, I always lament when you do get those big companies leaving. And I know we've got such a, we, we've got such a great, creative and thriving economy of small, medium-sized businesses. But having served on boards, particularly IBCLA and some others, having served on boards, I think people forget, miss the fact that it's a, it, those larger companies also provide volunteers. They also write checks. And I think when you start losing that C-level executive to Houston or Austin or Denver or whatever, then they sort of lose their connectivity to the community. And one of the things that I've seen in my own civic journey was that, you know, I used to say, wow, I would almost love to or hate to be the head of the Wells Fargo Foundation <laughs> because how many people can go to the well, no pun intended, all the time. So, so you need more hands on deck, which is, you know, large companies who help fund the broad stage, for example, who support, you know, our, our nonprofit organizations. And I think I don't think we have as many of those as we need, given the needs that we do have. I interviewed a small business here in Pasadena. A student went to John Muir High School, which is a famous high school here. And there was an entrepreneurship club at John Muir at the time. I think it still continues to this day, but he was really inspired by that. And you know, he graduated he graduated from high school, went served in the army, became a passing police officer, but then wanted explore owning a coffee shop and, and roasting coffee. And so he quit all the other stuff. And I mean, it really kind of started in high school. No, there's just a lot of creative minds here. There's a lot of capital here, a lot of people with money here. Um, so, you know, just kind of harnessing that, that energy would be important. I think getting people at an early age would be terrific. So I mentioned that you were the former chair of the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce. And because of your knowledge of Hollywood, 
I would regret not asking you kind of what's next for Hollywood. And I say this because my father used to work in Hollywood, not the industry, but the actual location. And so I like to think that I kind of grew up in Hollywood, the uh, Los Feliz area, which is, you know, 15 minutes away, 10 to 15. Adjacent. That's adjacent. Yeah, it's adjacent. Um, not as adjacent now as it was back then because of traffic, but it's still. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, so I kind of grew up in Hollywood because we'd go to my dad's work on the weekends and after after school and stuff like that. So I, I got to see kind of the low points of Hollywood kind of in the 80s and then kind of seeing some of the, the green sprouts kind of in the, in the 90s a little bit. And obviously, it's 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 taken it's taken off in the last couple of years because of so much economic development and, and physical development. So, what do, what are your thoughts on Hollywood and kind of your um, kind of vision for the future of Hollywood? You know, that's a great question. I, I, unfortunately, you know, I never saw Hollywood really. Um, you know, in the eighties or the nineties, low points. You hear a lot about it. So, you know, I my it's interesting. I was an observer of Hollywood from my time at the LAEDC, um, engaged in Hollywood when I was a CRA commissioner because the redevelopment agency had a critical role to play in, in advancing development in downtown Hollywood, North Hollywood, parts of South LA, et cetera. Um, so I saw it from that perspective. And then I saw, you know, Hollywood from the perspective as an adjacent resident myself, you know, living in you know, Hancock Park, south of Hollywood, but, but near it. So I was always sort of around Hollywood and um, just found it really fascinating. You know, perhaps if I were younger, I'd go out in Hollywood more. But now, you know, I head south towards Larchmont, where it's quieter. But, you know, I, I just find it really fascinating. And particularly, I had the great opportunity to chair the Chambers Economic Development Committee with my, my colleague Lee Wen from Gensler. So we're, you know, and he lives in the heart of Hollywood. So we both like these city kids and these city people who cared about urbanism and I was, I've always been amazed that the city, from sort of a macroeconomic development strategy standpoint, you know, has, has not necessarily given Hollywood the resources that it's due. It certainly is a reason why we get, you know, the millions of people who come around the world who are going to come to L.A. They come because they want to see Hollywood, you know. Um, and so there are assets like the Walk of Fame and the, and the sign. But also... It's just amazing to me the tremendous assets such as, you know, in the entertainment industry between NBC Universal, you know, Paramount, now Netflix. So you've got these, you know, tremendous assets around which, you know, other economic activity can and will and should take place. And, and then, of course, you know, Hollywood has been a, a key location for public transit uh, with, with the red line and three stops in Hollywood. So I think, you know, from my perspective, I, I, I kind of think, you know, a thriving L.A. does not happen without a thriving Hollywood. You know, again, given the industries there, whether it's entertainment, three critical healthcare organizations, Kaiser Children's Hospital, Hollywood Presbyterian, obviously, you know, huge entertainment assets like the Bowl. There are we've got just such a, a diversity of economic activity that really sort of drives the feel and perception and opportunity of the region. And, you know, I think a lot of work has been done. There's still so much more to do. But, you know, you know, I, did, I think sometimes in, in L.A., obviously, you know, there was one council office that said to me years ago that, you know, we got to remember that the mayor is like 
one one sixteenth of you know the city, you know, and I so everyone's sort of you know thinking that they're operating with the same slice of power. Where I think certainly regions like downtown Hollywood, Venice are sort of three nodes of economic activity that um, really I think require a lot more care and attention. Um, because I think that those are big drivers for the region. You know, I, I have family from Europe and or Australia, and they come and they're like, "Oh, we want to see Hollywood." Like you said, they want to they want to drive down Hollywood Boulevard, and they're and they're somewhat surprised to see what, what it looks like. I mean, in a, in a good and bad way sometimes. When I think of Hollywood growing up here, it seems like the studios were siloed, and that you know there were these incredibly big ornate organizations, but they were behind four walls. And they didn't really kind of interact with the Hollywood neighborhoods, really, because most mm-hmm. people didn't live, you know, you didn't live next to Paramount Studios or Sony Studios or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious to see kind of how Hollywood evolves and if we can break some of those walls down. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I think certainly the old style studios, you know, the Warner Brothers, Disney, Paramount, they're all behind the walls. Certainly, I think organizations like Netflix um, maybe with a, a younger or different demographic of employees with many more people out and about, you know, on the streets, living in the apartments nearby, you know, um, going frequenting bars and restaurants. Um, and, you know, certainly at 1.6 million square feet will have an, an outsized, you know, economic um, um, impact on, on the rest of the community. But I think you're right. You know, the chamber is, is a huge proponent of Council Member O'Farrell's, you know, Hollywood Boulevard Master Plan Project which has a whole reimagining of, of that boulevard. And um, it, it, it is needed. It you know, really is, you know, I, again, I know when I got here, you know, and would go up to, you know, Hollywood Boulevard, you know, I would think, oh, is this it? Okay. 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 So, yeah, it, it, it's about, it's about, you know, if, we, if we're getting, you know, 55 million people as we did before the pandemic into LA and, you know, 10 plus million coming to Hollywood, you know, we got to, we got to make sure that we've got a positive visitor experience and not just with the visitors, but also the increasing residential population um, that lives here and those who come into Hollywood to work, whether it's at our hospitals or at work at teach at Hollywood high school or the hotels. So, you know, I, I you know, I, I just think that I would, I would certainly suggest that there should be you know, more priority on, on Hollywood, because I think as a, a tractor of tourism, as a facilitator of jobs um, to, to people from out, out the region and thus generating tax revenue for the city. You know, again, I'm not going to say that we deserve more attention than, than others, but I think we deserve more attention than others. <laughs> this year, Los Angeles will elect a new mayor. The primary election takes place in June, which seems like it's going to be t- tomorrow. And the runoff is in November. As your podcast seeks to engage residents in the life of the communities and the city, do you see a role for Civitas LA in the upcoming election? And as someone who's been so engaged in civic and business life in our, ci- in our city, do you have any thoughts on the upcoming elections? Well, you know, that's interesting. Um, you know, we always say and we repeat in our in our opening, you know, our mission is to you know elevate civic discourse, di- elevate civic discourse and foster community connections, promote civic knowledge and engagement. You know, late last year, you know, my program manager, Timothy, and I were talking about this and I had asked him, maybe we should do something around the mayoral election 2022. And we reached out and we got um, information on 
you know, all the campaigns. And subsequently, earlier this year, you know, we reached out to all of them and said, hey, we'd love to invite you on Civitas LA um, to talk about community building, civic engagement, um, leadership, et cetera. So I'm happy with the response that we got. And actually, just this past week, um, we launched our first in a series called Leading LA, a conversation with. And these are conversations that we're having, you know, with those candidates who hope to be mayor. So we just released um, our first um, episode with um, city attorney Mike Fuhr. And then we've got a few more coming up. So, so we, yeah, we said, yeah, look, if this is what our mission of our podcast is, then we need to get in this game and be part of this conversation. And so we're happy to have this Leading LA series. So let's shift gears a little bit. So in July of 2020, you started Civitas LA with the goal to elevating civic discourse foster connections, promote civic knowledge and engagement, and to lift voices of those that are doing great work in the area. And you've had an incredibly diverse number of guests across LA. You've included politicians, like you mentioned, um, you've had city council members on, you've had business owners, community leaders, et cetera. How did the podcast come about and why did you feel it was necessary to create such a platform? I'll get to the timing part next, but, but the why of it was, you know, again, I was, you know, asked to do this workforce investment board, business tax advisory committee. And I, you know, I always raised my hand and I said, sure, sure, and sure. And serve on these boards. But I was also very cognizant of who is at the table and who wasn't at the table. And in my previous jobs, I was in a place for four years or five years. But, you know, now I've been here, you know, 18. But throughout this journey of, of my own civic engagement, I was just always aware of who was in, in that room. And frankly, I used to say to myself, I'm seeing the same damn people over and over and over again. And the question to me was always why? Then the second strain of that, and that was either A, these people do good work, or B, you know, those who do the selections are too lazy to identify, you know, other people um, to do that work. And I think sometimes in LA, if you're showing up doing the work, you know, you would be asked to do more work and more work. <laughs> and um, so I think I was one of those that was showing up doing the work and being asked to do more work and more work and more work. But I was, but um, and the second, but the second part of that is distinctly also recognizing, you know, a friend of mine would say, wow, you're really involved. Like, why are you so involved? Don't you have work to do? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I also just felt as though there was low, uh, awareness and engagement of the, the uh, what was going on civically in the region. And while people can get excited about the, the, the noise that emanates from Washington, D.C., you know, what impacts what impacts their lives and our lives daily is traffic, schools, public safety, you know, the, you know, the, the streetscape, et cetera. So, you know, why is it that they're not aware of who their council members are, who the mayor is, et cetera. So I just found sort of compared to New York City or D.C. or, San Francisco, where I think local politics is sort of blood sport. I just found that people here were just simply not aware or engaged. I remember talking to a couple of people at entertainment companies about, you know, volunteerism. And it's like, oh, people are too busy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I, I something that Bill Allen, president of LAEDC, had shared with me a couple of years ago was a report that he had gotten from the Corporation for National and Community Service. They had done a survey uh, nationally on volunteerism. And it showed that L.A. ranked something like 
eight out of 50 uh, metropolitan areas and volunteerism per capita, and that California ranked 47 out of 50 states plus the District of Columbia. So I, I had felt that. And when I saw that study that came out of this group out of D.C., which was set up by former President Clinton, I was shocked and, and not surprised, but not surprised. And, and then I think a third piece of it, I distinctly remember leaving a meeting in South L.A. This was the elections in 2017. And it was, you know, KCRW was reporting at around 530 that, you know, there was like six percent turnout at that point. And I thought, holy heck. So, you know, so a, so a couple things, you know, A, you know, I had sensed low level of, of volunteerism, low level of awareness, um, low level of voter participation. Our newspapers were just shrinking rapidly, you know, as, as you know, and there's no local news. So people don't know what's going on necessarily. And, you know, I was searching around, you know, our local TV stations and only NBC actually had a local public affairs program. So it's like, wow, one reason why people aren't aware or engaged is that there's no source of information, you know, for these people. So they know what's going on. So, so I just thought, okay, in, in my own way, what am I going to do about it? <laughs> and, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to set up my own, you know, public affairs TV program, uh, or maybe a radio program. You know, I, I, I'd already loved, you know, Warren Alney's Which Way LA program with KCRW, but it's like, you know, why just him? Why not? So I had gone to this um, this digital Hollywood conference in 2019 over at the Skirball Center, and they had a one day track on podcasting. And I was taking copious amounts of notes. It's like, okay, maybe this is sort of like a a low a, a low barrier of entry for me to make the statement that I wanted around civic engagement, why that was important, and you know, and I was going to go beyond the quote unquote usual suspects because you know, despite you know, the, the noise of, of the national conversation, certainly what I observed in my own LA experience from South LA to Culver City, to the West Side, et cetera, that they were just good people just doing good work every day. And, and, and despite the challenges of, of, of traffic and what have you, you know, there are people who are raising their hand to serve, to build community. And I, and I wanted to talk about that. And then, the, and then the timing, you talked about, that's about the timing, you know, we, Started July of, of, of 2020, you know, that was just really a function of, of you know, having some bandwidth, you know, my consulting practice, you know, keeps me, keeps me quite busy, but I was really, really fortunate to bring on right before the pandemic, um, a research assistant, Timothy Halligan, and, you know, on the whiteboard was a thing called LA Voices. And um, doing a trademark search, we saw that, that, Southern California Public Radio actually had a program some years ago. So we couldn't, so we, so we couldn't use that. We couldn't use that. So, you know, again, going back to my time at Deerfield, freshman year, you always have to take shaping a Western society with Bob Larkin, 750 in the morning, and you learn about citizenship. And, uh, so we went back to the old boarding school days, what was Civitas, citizen. Um, and, um, our trademark attorney found that we could use that. And, uh, with Timothy's help, we, uh, we decided to start going through, you know, all these folks that I had met over the course of my LA journey and say, we said, I want to talk about civic engagement and the good news of our region and those folks who are showing up every day to build, serve and create community. And in fact, we did not, with an intention, we did not look at sort of the elected leadership realm because these are folks who already have platforms to communicate what they feel and had access to the LA Times. But, you know, in these communities that people don't think about, you know, I want to talk about the good work they're doing. And so we focused, like, for example, we did a four part series on South LA 
And something that I had noticed, certainly in my LA experience, I just, I simply got tired of, of reading the LA Times. I probably shouldn't call them out on this. I got tired of LA Times stories on South LA at the anniversary of the riots. And, you know, there, there's, there's more to talk about in South LA than post riot you know, syndrome. There are people who are going to work, going to church, you know, going to the neighborhood grocery stores, doing the work of building community. And how do we celebrate that? And how do we, you know, elevate their voices and what they're trying to do and create connections. And also, as you know, this is such a huge region. My gosh, I, you know, I, you know, I used to, when I was at LADC, at one point I had central South LA and the West side. So from the ocean, from the, from the, from downtown to the ocean, you know, Mulholland down to the 105, I would just sort of run around and, and, and I found it great, but, you know, but also just found that, Wow, if somebody's doing something really wonderful over in Culver City, you know, they may not know this person in East LA and, and might they replicate that? Or is there a collaboration there? Um, so that, that's where the community connections part comes in because, you know, I would see in my own travels, I would say, Oh, they're doing this over in Culver City. Maybe you should think about this over in South LA or whatever, whatever. And I just found that people just didn't know each other and there was not a lot of. There was not a lot of cross pollination um, of ideas, and, and I found generally these were these were folks who were you know they were not going to chamber meetings, you know. But you know how could we lift up these voices, and if that if that work is heard elsewhere, that could be replicated or further a potential collaboration. And so we just started because you know we finally had done so much laying of the groundwork: why to do it, how to do it, where to do it. You know, how frequently should you do it? You know, and we had gone through the, the, the Rolodex of business cards that I accumulate and we had put green dots, yellow dots and red dots thinking, OK, let's, let's let's reach out to people. And we, we just got such a really, really positive response right out of the gate. So that was just terrific. I said, my gosh, we're on to something. We now have to do this. Well, almost two years later, what have been some of the most impactful lessons that you've received from these conversations that you've held? In terms of my own service on boards and seeing who's at the table and who's not, a message that comes across over and over and over again from a lot of our, our particularly our nonprofit leaders who are working with you know, young girls, young boys, people of color, et cetera, is that representation matters. So that's just a, a key message that we must be mindful about is how do we continue to bring others along? and engage people in the civic conversation of our region. And, you know, the other phrase that keeps coming up is, you know, from my dear friend, Betty Lamar at Empower Hers, you know, you can't be it if you can't see it. So I love learning um, from these guests. And I love the fact that, you know, 62 episodes in, you know, there are a couple of things that crop up over and over and over again. And I'm hopeful that that um, certainly inspires others who are in leadership to think about, you know, who's at that board, who's at that working group, et cetera. You've remarked that Civitas LA has become a second job in a very good way. How does the podcast complement your other work, both your advisory work and your service for nonprofits? You know, I, I think it's too soon to tell. You know, I was civically engaged, and I think that's important. Um, but I did the podcast because it was a way to make my statement. Um, I, I, I didn't really think of that as a sort of a business development tool. Although when you go to these podcast forums, they're always asking about, you know, the what and the why and how you can attach it to your business. You know, for me, it was about 
you know, it's always about the content and the guests and what they're doing. And you, but, but maybe, you know, either existing clients or prospective clients just can further see that given my civic engagement and this podcast that, hey, here's somebody who's committed to community and that if we're trying to get something done in LA, here's somebody who can help us for the right reasons because he's got the knowledge and the relationship to having served on these boards and commissions, what have you. But also that, um, you know, again, it just helps maybe, you know, elevate you know, the brand of the business. But it, it hasn't been as a, a direct benefit, shall we say, yet. I think the podcast on its own is starting to, you know, derive its own, you know, sort of economic value as we begin to get sponsors to support this work because they believe that we've done something really meaningful. What were some of the show's earliest challenges and how did you overcome them? Oh, God. You know, I probably overthought this. One of my things was, you know, it wasn't going to be just like, you know, two guys at a bar stool just having a conversation. Now, those can be great podcasts and they're fun. They're, and, but my, but my other little mantra is, is always, we are not quite 60 minutes yet. <laughs> you know, so, you know, so, so again, I think we overthought like, why did, why do it? How to do it? All the tools, whether studio or, or our at office, you know, recording system, guest development, et cetera. But I think the biggest the, the biggest challenge was that we decided, frankly, with the, the pace of it, which was we started out weekly. And I did not, frankly, know, you, as you know, you got to get the guests. You got to you know develop what the conversation is about. You've got to, you know, get on his or her busy schedule. We for us, we were at studios. We had to find studio, studio space, secure the audio engineers time you know, clear my work schedule. So the, so the biggest challenge was really just the coordination of all of that and the pace and to say that if we wanted to be intentional about it, you know, they kind of say, if you're podcasting every couple of months, you're not podcasting. Once a month, maybe. Every two weeks, good. Weekly. So we said, we're going to do weekly, darn it. And, and I have to say, I think the first 16 or so were weekly, and it near killed me, frankly. I just, I, I, you know, we started July. By the time I know, by by the time November came around, you know, again, I had, you know, the gather strategies work. You know, I was chair of the board of the Hollywood Chamber. I was still president of the board of the Hollywood um, United Methodist Church. I was still on the LADC board. So, and and then you know, three, then four COVID cases. And my family back in New York. So by the time we got towards the latter part of 2020, I was just tired and said, no, this, this, this can't continue, you know? So in, I think November, we went to bi-weekly. So that was, you know, one way to overcome, you know, the sheer exhaustion of it was to go to, to, to a bi-weekly format. And that's worked out pretty well. I can certainly relate to overthinking it. This podcast kind of started, I started thinking about it in the spring of 2020, but it took me, like you said, it just, you start thinking about what you want to do, what you can do, how to do it, where to do it, who do you want to do it with? And then, and then like months go by and you're like, wait a minute, I, I just need to kind of start. And for me, the, and I've said this before, was that I think the hardest part of this show has been the first, the very first episode where I just kind of laid out what I wanted to do. I didn't have any guests, but I needed to set the right tone and I needed to re- set the right message. And it took me like, I think I probably had like 10 different drafts of what that script said. Just because you kind of want, you want to start off correctly. Yes, yes. I think I had the same kind of visions like, oh, I'd love to do it weekly. But I mean, I can't imagine actually having done that. Yeah, like we did, like we went step by step, do a trailer, 
doing episode zero, you know, really walk through, you know, bring your audience along. It was just crazy. Did you do a trailer in episode zero? I did a trailer. So yeah, I guess that was the episode zero. I was lucky in that my first guest was the then mayor of Pasadena. Oh, wow. Who lives in my council district. He was my council member. He generously appointed me to uh, a city commission that I served on for a number of years. And so I I knew him not very well, but I knew him uh, enough to reach out. Once I sent the invitation, I was like, okay, well, we'll see what happens. And then he responded almost immediately saying, yes, happy to do so. And then it's like, oh, now I actually have to do this. And now, so that was the scariest part, which is like, okay, I've said I'm going to do this and now I have to do it. How was guest attraction for you? How was guest development for you? Identifying who you want to speak with and why? How, what was your thought process on on developing your your lineup of potential guests? Good question. Very good question. I think it's evolved in the, in, the, in the two years I've done it, year and a half. I knew I wanted to have some people that were you know in elected office because they were the policymakers. And obviously, I have an interest in policy, mm-hmm. um, but coming from a small business background, I work from a, for a small business, small family business. I really wanted to kind of highlight some of the small businesses that are in the community. Mm-hmm. You made a really good, interesting analogy, which is like, as a neighborhood, you think you've arrived and you, and you get that Starbucks or Chipotle, but it's really the mom and pop next door that's been there for 20 years that doesn't get the recognition that they, they deserve. Exactly. But, and far more interesting to me. Yeah, exactly. But they're not publicly traded, so no one really pays attention to them. But they've been around for decades and, and everyone knows them. So it was trying to get some of those voices on. And then also I'm a relatively quiet person and I don't venture out much. Okay. Um, <laughs> certainly with COVID and, uh, and having several young children, you know, yeah. even, yeah. even more so it was, a, it was a way to push me to make those connections and have those conversations. You know, passing is a lot smaller than Los Angeles. We're about 148,000 people. Passing is really diverse and people don't really think of that. They think of the Rose Bowl and they think of like the, the, the Gamble House, which is where Back to the Future was shot, and and City Hall, which is like on, seems like it is in almost every Hollywood production of any kind of City Hall. Um, but there are parts of, you know, there's East Pasadena, which has a whole different, totally different feel. There's Northwest Pasadena, which is, again, really diverse and has been really affected by the, the construction of the freeways. And so it decimated some of those neighborhoods, which were, you know, legacy minority neighborhoods. And so it was, it was a way for me to really push myself into learning more about Pasadena because I'm not a native. I grew up in Los Angeles. When I was a kid, we would come to old Pasadena because that was like, you know, for me, it was like 20 minutes away. It was a nice place. So, I, but I didn't know anything other than old Pasadena. And that's what I think we're very limited, like Hollywood. You know, if you go to Los Angeles, you want to go to Hollywood, you go to old pass. And so it was a way to kind of what's outside Colorado Boulevard. Well, that's certainly one of those communities that, uh, you know, I, I never, I don't get to that often at all. And every time I'm there, it's like, wow, why don't I come up to Pasadena more often? It's really interesting, interesting place. So we'll have to do a community spotlight, Pasadena, and have you on Civitas LA. Well, that'd be very nice. I, I, I'll certainly point you in the right direction in terms of other people to talk to, but I appreciate that. Civitas LA is supported in different ways. You know, you record at Emerson College, like you mentioned on Sunset Boulevard, and you've partnered with groups like Community Build, which is a nonprofit founded by Congresswoman Maxine Waters and Brenda Shockley. And this nonprofit kind of prioritizes comprehensive services for at-risk, out-of-school, foster, and gang-involved youth. How do you think Civitas LA can be an ally to Community Build and other organizations that you associate with 
You know, you know, I appreciate that. You know, again, when I started, you know, there was no quote unquote, you know, financial model. I remember one of our guests asked me, so what's your business model? I don't have one. What is, what is one? I just, again, I just was interested in doing my little bit to, to promote good stories and support good people. And I was just, you know, thrilled when, you know, you know, when we started, again, we, we, we started looking at our guests via geography. And so we did like this four part series on South Los Angeles, because again, I didn't want to talk about riots. So we talked about what Mark Wilson is doing at the Coalition for Responsible Community Development and um, Veronica Melvin at you know, LA Promise Fund and, and Robert Sosedo at, at, at um, Community Build. And literally, I think he, Robert was you know, episode eight, maybe. And he literally said, he literally said, I like what you're doing. How can we help? And the audio engineer and I were in a studio and we like looked at each other. It was like, dang, that's like really, really nice. So, so early on, you know, they have provided some support um, to us and that continues. You know, we were at another studio on La Brea, but I had reached out to, to Emerson during the pandemic because we needed you know, just better audio quality. Um, you know, when you've got traffic noise across from Pink's Hot Dogs, I mean, La Brea, you got, there's a lot of post-production work that goes on and, and, you know, time is money, which we didn't have much of. So I just reached out serendipitously to Allison Samson over at Emerson and say, hey, you know, is anybody using, do you have recording studios? Is anybody using them? And so she said, no, we'd love to have you. And so that's where we've recorded ever since episode 11. So they've just been a, a great partner for us. But I think, you know, what I find, exciting and what I like doing with the approval of, of our guests, particularly our nonprofit guests, is, you know, I love being able, you know, if I'm reading something in the LA Times um, or any other periodical or whatever, you know, and I see somebody has a fund to support youth, for example, you know, I will send them a little note and send them the link to the Boys and Girls Club of Hollywood conversation. Or, you know, with the work Larry LeBeau is doing, you know, I'll send you know, information on, on their organization to groups that are doing things in film and looking at diverse audiences. So I love going beyond the conversation, which, which, which we love. But, you know, one of the things I, I try to be intentional about, we try to be intentional about is also how can we use that conversation to support their work and get those conversations in the, in the hands of others? Um, either to either, you know, I love when I get a note saying, Hey, I just heard the Lorna Little conversation from St. Anne's episode 59. I'd like to meet her. Great. Love that. Love that. I, that, that, that is what we are here to do. That's what I love doing. And certainly I think as we have that intention about having the good conversations, helping to put these conversations in the hands of potential supporters for those organizations, I think others are seeing us in a, in a, in a more, as a more valuable partner as well. So, you know, um, you know, so this year, now that we're, you know, we started July of 2020, 2020, 2021 was all pretty much self-funded support from community build this year, you know, starting January, we've been so blessed and fortunate. Um, a real estate firm at Woodland Hill, CGI plus came in and, and supported our women's history month series, community build supported our black history month series. Um, City National Bank is supporting our Pride Month series. So that's also been, been, been one thing that we've done given the cycle that we went through in from July 2020 through to, to January 2021. 
but certainly for the full year, you know, we looked at, we looked at in our guest and episode development also as opportunity to celebrate in those sort of existing celebratory months. So that was a great way for us to sort of identify, at least we know who we're aiming for in this particular month of conversation. But having successfully done that in 2021, we've now been able to sort of pre-sell, hey, will you support our Black History Month series, our Pride Month? So, you know, so we've got, you know, Hispanic Heritage Month, you know, sponsored, Pride Month sponsored. We're looking at um, a doing a National Entrepreneurship Month and supporting looking at small business. So it's been it's been it's been great. And but again, our, our work is to produce the conversation, get that conversation in as many hands as we can. Also, if we see funding opportunities, we can say, hey, take a look at this worthy organization um, and then try to find opportunities to connect these leaders together as well. Because we haven't you know, a lot of these have been on Zoom. Some have been in person. But the, but the next step of this process is also to facilitate community connections amongst you know, the 62 guests. And I think that's really an incredible part of the podcast is kind of making those connections, you know, in a very limited capacity, I've had guests reach out saying, Oh, I've heard you talk to so-and-so, uh, you know, can you make an introduction? I had a, a, a community leader who's part of a church and said, Oh, I, you know, I heard your conversation with it, with this historian, you know, I'm going to reach out to her now because I heard your interview and I had, um, there's a museum here that connected with one of my small business guests and they might kind of partner with something. And so when you hear those stories, it just becomes the fuel to do more and to kind of keep it going. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that great? Isn't that just a great feeling? It is. The podcast is a love-hate relationship. Usually I drop them on Wednesdays. Usually Tuesday night or really early Wednesday morning, I typically hate the episode. I hate podcasting. It's too much work. Uh, I'm exhausted. But then it comes out and you're like, this is wonderful. When's, what's the next one? Hearing those connections and hearing those stories, like you said, that is the reason why I, I started this in the first place. I'm sure you did as well. Absolutely. That, that is truly the why of it. I, again, I, 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 I love the learning of it. So I find myself, particularly when we have in-studio conversations, sometimes I, I sort of lose train of thoughts in terms of moving the conversation along because the guest is, is, is talking. I'm just learning from him or her. I'm just thinking, this is great. But I love also when, you know, when we say, you know, you know, people send a note to info at civitasla.com, which I check periodically, and somebody will say, hey, you know, because of that that conversation, I added that group to my end-of-year giving list. Um, or, hey, because of my appearance on your podcast, I was able to speak at this conference or whatever. So I, I love that. There was a woman that I heard on a, on a clubhouse conversation. She said, you know, if she, if she just gets one listener, she's happy. Now, granted, as you know, we do a lot of work, so we won't always want more than one listener. But, but it is when you get that one response. However, that is such an amazing rush because, like, wow, you know, I made just a little bit of difference in somebody's life today. And if I can do that, keep doing that, keep growing that, that's that's really all that matters. As is, and I, and again, as I said, we are just grateful that that you know we're getting some sponsor support. But you know, our goal, you know, I don't know how you feel about this. You know, I. We're starting to get people saying, you know, you should have a YouTube channel now. You know, you got to do more video, you know, you know, and it's like, you know, my head explodes with like, what, what more can I do? You know, I, you know, we, we want to have our, our first, you know, Civitas LA gathering this summer to celebrate, you know, two years and get everybody together to say thank you for, for being part of our, our journey. You know, I want to do like, you know, a Civitas LA gathering um, around MLK Day of Service and do a service project and talking to one of our guests 
the LA Parks Foundation about doing some projects together. So, you know, I, you know, I want to do more than, than just have the conversation. I want to say, you know, how can we go about being positive, being intentional about facilitating community connections, getting these people working together, fostering more collaboration? What advice would you give to young civic-minded people that want to get involved? We always end by saying, stay strong and get involved. And, and I would say, first of all, you know, you, you don't need to be on like the Red Cross or United Way, one of these big, important, powerful boards that we all sort of know about, because there's just so much need across the region and, 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 and everyone has something to offer. So, yeah, sort of like what I did with the IVCLA, I just called. So, you know, my advice is to say, you know, what are you interested in? What do you have a passion for? You know, pick up the phone book or go online now. You don't have a phone book anymore. I'm aging myself. And just find an organization around that topic or theme in your local community and just call them and get involved. Just jump right in. You know, everyone needs just sort of either, you know, help with graphics or finance and accounting. You know, a lot of there's there's just a lot of need in our in our diverse communities um, so if you're safe with mine, just 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 find one thing and jump right in. So when you think about the next five years, the next ten years, and beyond, what do you envision for LA's future, and what role do you see yourself and Civitas playing in it? Well, you know, I'm hopeful. You know, I just I just find. I remember a friend of mine when I worked in Washington said, you know, if you're leaving National Airport and you're coming drive taking a taxi into the city. At night, and you no longer feel inspired by the Lincoln Memorial or the Washington Monument. It's time to leave. And so, so, so similarly, you know, I I would have to say, eighteen years in, uh, with in LA, I still when I go back east to visit family for the holidays and what have you, you know, I'm still one that like you know wants a row aisle row aisle seat on the way out, but a window seat on the way in to sort of see. You know, from Palm Springs into LA, all the economic activity in those warehouses on East LA and San Gabriel Valley and see the hills. So I just, I, I just still find the place incredibly interesting. And just as I've always, you know, you know, pursued your know, jobs that I thought were just interesting experiences, you know, I think I'm still having a very interesting experience here in LA 18, 18 years in. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. You know, there are a lot of talented men and women, um, who, who make this place work. Um, you know, we'll see how obviously local elections uh, come out in, in, in this year and what the trajectory of, of, of the public policies landscape looks like. But I think, you know, we just got, we've got such amazing ingredients for a thriving region. And, um, you know, I, I just, I just really think that there's no reason, you know, why this place should not be a thriving region for all. One of the features of your podcast is that you close out every show with a lightning round series of questions for guests. And I thought it would be fun if we did something similar here to turn the tables on you a little bit. And these questions have been shared in advance, so I'm not, these are not gotcha questions. But um, I think that there's some fun questions I think I'd really be interested in getting your answers to. So first is, when you have some free time, which I don't really know how you do because it seems like you're so involved and you're incredibly busy, but... When you do have free time, what are some of your favorite places to visit in Los Angeles? And it could be a park, a museum, et cetera. You know, it's funny, James, when you talk about um, the lightning round and, 
I think one one of the one reason why I enjoy the lightning rounds, um, you know, it's just sort of a fun way to sort of wind down a conversation. But it's really also a function opportunity for me to discover new places because. You know, I think you may have mentioned earlier that you become a creature of habit or your podcast is a way to get out. And, you know, I find places and I just stick with I'd be like a dead horse, you know. So, you know, if I've got some free time, which is, which is not much, I, you know, I, I just I, like a lot of people. I love being outdoors here. I still, you know, my 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 hips are saying no, no, no. But I still get up early Sunday mornings, go out to Santa Monica and go to the beach. And I love running. You know, that is to me, that is just such a joy to to go on a Sunday morning run, and, and I've got a little a little route out there and back that takes me through neighborhoods that I sort of see in the quiet of the morning. So I I love that, and yeah, then with some of my chamber colleagues who drag me out at seven a.m. on 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 Friday mornings to go hike in Griffith Park, just love that great way to start the day, great way to wind down the week. I, and other than that, I you know I frankly love being at home reading uh, because of its diversity of cultures and geography. You have some incredible places to eat. What are a couple of your favorite restaurants or food trucks? And are there any new ones that you're excited about that are opening up? You know, everyone gets excited about the new stuff. And I generally don't actually, you know, I like, I like, you know, quality, consistency and convenience. So, so I stay sort of close to my general geography. You know, I could probably eat you know, at Osteria Mama every night if, if I were allowed over near where I live. You know, if I've got, you know, client stuff going on, you know, we love Musso and Frank, you know, just nothing better than the curabata pork chop and a martini. Um, and, you know, and I and I, I go to Bakari a lot over on 3rd. Well, and there's a new one over in Silverlake that I go to as well. So I, I, I have a, a few places that I go to a lot. Now, you enjoy visiting places for coffee and drinks. I think there's a spot in Larchmont Village that you go to. And you've expressed that you really like rooftop bars. When you want to relax with a cup of coffee or a nice cocktail, where do you go and what do you order? You know, I, I do like a cocktail or two, um, but but I like my wine. I like my Malbec. So, you know, I am all, you know, you know, A, if I'm just running errands, I love, you know, I go to Larchmont a lot for everything. Everything that I need is over there. So I'm often there, you know, Saturday breakfast with my LA Times having um coffee and, and, and breakfast. But, you know, for, for a cocktail, I am all about the rooftops of Hollywood. You know, we've seen such a great reemergence of Hollywood and some great ho- new hotels and everyone's got a great rooftop. So I'm at the, the Godfrey or formerly Mama Shelter, um, but currently Bar Lease is my spot at the, at the Thompson. And I'm, you know, always going to have a glass of red or if I don't feel like wine, I'll have a, a old fashioned. LA is known for its beautiful sunsets. Where is the best place to close out your perfect day in Los Angeles? And it could be a, a beach, could be a park, et cetera. You know, if I ever get out of at, at, out of the office at a reasonable time, and I've done this a couple of times, go for an early evening hike in Runyon Canyon. My, that is just so incredibly beautiful. Um, you know, you're getting some exercise, you're outdoors, amazing views. So I love that. Or, you know, because I'm with, you know, just work colleagues or friends, you know, for a, a drink early evening, you know, we're at a rooftop in Hollywood having, having a glass of wine or two. Well, Dwayne, thank you very much for being such a great part of Los Angeles, for your work to improve civic engagement and civil discourse in our area, and for coming on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Well, James, I appreciate you and appreciate you having me on, on your podcast and appreciate 
all the work that you're also doing in this in this space over in Pasadena. So I'm hopeful that when we do our community spotlight, that we'll have you on and some other Pasadena leaders. Because that's certainly you know one of our most important communities. And, and and we are not just about LA. So we always mindful that we've got to get our work beyond the city of LA. My many thanks to Dwayne for coming on the show. Civitas LA began as a way to educate, engage, and share stories of all the good that is happening in Los Angeles. And what Dwayne has built over the course of 61 episodes is an inspiring way to learn and connect with the City of Angels. For more information about Civitas LA, please visit CivitasLA.com and follow the podcast on social media to get the latest updates and some behind-the-scenes insights into Dwayne's conversations. And thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. The podcast can be found on most platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, among many others. Please consider supporting the show either through direct sponsorship or Patreon. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram. Until next time, please remember to stay well, stay engaged, and as always, see you around town.